A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Ron, thanks for joining. So this is our, I don't know, this is like the fourth in a series of Ask the Experts, the chemical show live with the idea that people have a chance to ask questions, not just me asking questions, although I'll start out that way. So sure. um, Ron, I appreciate you joining. So we started chatting just before we got started here about inflation. So I think, hey, Kendall, thanks for jumping on. So I have a few questions and then people get a chance to ask questions of their own. But Ron, what do you see happening, right? We just saw news about inflation hitting 9.1%, which is astonishing. And then again, not, right? So I think all of us as individual consumers recognize how the effect of inflation on our personal lives. But Mm -hmm. what do you see as the effect of inflation in the job market and executive recruiting? Yeah, I think much of that is still to be determined. But in terms of what we're seeing right now, particularly with our clients that are more North American centric, their businesses, their hiring remains as robust as as it's been. Global chemical materials companies that have more exposure to Europe and the European markets that have been more negatively impacted by the war in Ukraine. I think we've seen a bit of a slowdown there, particularly trying to compete globally from a cost and a raw material side. But I would say in terms of where we see private equity and and to some degree, the public companies, businesses, particularly in the high touch, high growth, high margin sectors of chemicals, they remain as active as they've been. That's amazing because Right. So the the media would have us believe that the sky is falling, although obviously we know the business is still going well. It is. And we view that through the lens as well as the type of conversations and then ultimate search assignments we have with our clients where we continue to see roles that have more of a commercial innovation and product development focus, which takes us down that track of there's still more growth. Now, some of that growth may be a bit more organic than where is more acquisition driven in years past. When we start to see the shifts into more supply chain, finance, operational excellence roles, that's when we're, we're focused and clients are focused a bit more on the cost side of the house. And that tends to drive our thinking that, okay, maybe they're now recognizing this or their, their projected forecasts have that type of scenario more fully baked. That's interesting. So you see the difference in terms of as it relates to the economy in terms of whether people are searching for growth roles, if you will, versus control, cost control and operational roles. Absolutely. Hmm. Cool. What are some of the biggest misconceptions people have? I think this is always one of these things. Oh, this is interesting. But what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you find that people have as they come into 
as they're engaging with the recruiter, as they're engaging in the job market? Well, that's that's a lot there. I, I would say one of the biggest misconceptions is that it oftentimes really is just around networking. And from our perspective, yes, obviously we have clients and we have roles that we're looking to fill. And in, in today's market, we, we have to fill them faster than ever because candidates simply have more opportunities in front of them than, than they've likely ever had, or certainly in the, the most recent past. So for us, when we're calling candidates, especially candidates that we don't know or haven't engaged with us before, we really want to get to know them. We also want to understand what does their career trajectory look like? What would their mm. what would their ideal career road mapping take shape and, and how could we possibly assist? I would say that the second biggest misconception is when it relates back to the networking, ensure that you keep that network alive and well. And in particular, in and around private equity, because the private equity firms, both from the investment side, as well as from the operating partner side, uh, they have a very healthy Rolodex and a very healthy network of executives that they know. And oftentimes, these roles are filled either before they ever go to search or they go to search, but there's a strong feeling who the candidate's going to be. And and so the more people you can have speaking on your behalf, whether you know it or not, certainly the more opportunities, the better opportunities that will be presented to you. Yeah. All right. So can we dive in on this networking piece? Because people always, you know, you always say, oh, keep your network alive, make sure you're networking. What does that really look like? Is, I mean, what's your recommendations on this? What does that look like? Is there a frequency? How does that play out? Because I think that's an area that a lot of people struggle with Mm -hmm. in terms of just how does that really manifest in real life? That's a great question. And and so in one hand, if going back to that career roadmapping piece, if an executive is is very strongly in their feelings, I want to be a CEO, I want to be a CFO, whatever the case might be. The first piece then is identify either those executives with whom you've worked, that you really admire, that you respect, and have followed a similar roadmap as you. Keep close to them. Figure out how they got there, what roles they took, what stretch assignments they took, what lessons they learned along the way. And and all of this is simply going to add more data into your decision-making arsenal. And Mm. then I would say beyond that, if if there are functions, if there are segments of the value chain that are of higher interest than others, then identify who are the market leaders in those respective functions or industries. And then to the best that you can through the relationships or through the network that you have, get introduced to those individuals. And I think what you'll find is when, when you do the homework up front and much like an interview, right, you come armed with very well thought out, very poignant questions, then you're going to have a far more engaged conversation. And then ultimately, you're going to have a relationship that you can carry forward. 
And then mm-hmm. outside of that, it's also being reciprocal, right? When when people reach out to you and, and ask you questions or when people may have a career road mapping decision and they're seeking an additional point of counsel, you know, be that resource to them as well, because it most certainly is a two-way street. Yeah. Interesting. That's helpful. Samir or Kendall, you guys have any questions that you want to jump in with? Not at the moment, Victoria. I'm good for now. Just just listening. Thanks. All right. Awesome. No, the last one you asked was curious, Victoria. I have one maybe that follows a little on that. Ron, good to see you, by the way. You too, my friend. How would you coach somebody who's looking to reach out to headhunters and utilize headhunters as part of their job search? In other words, if I'm doing a job search, or where does where does a recruiter, sorry for mm-hmm. the for the for the headhunter term, where does a recruiter fit in that? What would be the other facets of that? And so how you would coach somebody to to approach you? Well, I would say the easiest way, the most efficient way, right, is to connect with people who have used recruiters or have used recruiters that that they admire and and respect. Uh And much like our own work in executive recruiting, your, your callback rate, your hit rate is much higher when somebody facilitates that introduction or somebody has introduced you to the executive or to the executive team. Conversely, when somebody that I've placed or that JM Search has placed or just people that we know and respect in the market, when they contact us and say, Ron, here is somebody that I'd love to introduce you to. Here's somebody you need to know. And that goes a long way to making sure they get in our diary. Okay. I could see that. And then, you know, similarly here, it's, I think, Victoria, we talked about this this previously. In, in some ways, it is like building a financial model, right? Where garbage in, garbage out. The more time you spend up front in, in diagramming where I'd like to go, where I'd like to take my career, experiences that have been the most challenging but have offered the most utility, the more you bring that level of work to a meeting with a recruiter, simply the more beneficial it's going to be. Because it's, yeah. you know, it's very clear then you've given quite a bit of thought, quite a bit of resource allocation to this is where I'd like to go and here's why. Here's the skills and competencies that I bring. And then to a point, having enough EQ to say, I know I haven't operated in this segment or I know I haven't had an expat assignment. So once I were to get one of those, how would that elevate my candidacy or how -hmm. would that best position me? And I think what we find is then we can be very candid and say, if we were looking for a $500 million portfolio company CEO in the specialty chemical segment, right? This is what the top flight candidates would look like. These are yeah. the experiences, the competencies, et cetera. And then you're really helping this person. How do I compare contrast to what that ideal target profile is? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting because I think a lot of times, especially if somebody's been inside a company for a long time and hasn't made many moves, you yeah. don't know how you compare. You don't really know how to you may not know how to position yourself on the external market, right? Because position yourself on the external talent market can be very different than positioning yourself on the internal talent market. No, that's that's absolutely right. And, and particularly if you've been with one company for an extended period of time, and, and during that time, you've had multiple roles, different functions, different lines of business, you, you probably haven't taken, in most cases, the time to really reflect on 
what have I done? What was the situation I walked into? What did I do to help position the business, drive the business, grow the business, whatever it might be? What sustainable actions have we put in place? And then ultimately here, irrespective of capital structure, what were the results? Where, where do we go from A to B and how do we make sure that we continue to measure and to continue to monitor those? And so what we oftentimes find is just having the conversation with a recruiter and, and telling the story. And like most of us, the more we tell the narrative, the more we sharpen the narrative. And the hundredth time we tell it is going to be far more succinct and compelling than the tenth time. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And I know one of the things you and I have talked about in the past is some of the, you know, one of the challenges in, in, I mean, I was at Shell for almost 20 years. And the reality is we had large scopes of business Mm -hmm. and yet not, right? So it's very rare for somebody inside of a Shell to actually have true P&L experience because it's, it's very fragmented, right? So so when, and I don't think that's a unique thing. I think this happens in other companies too. So I guess my question comes around to how important is it to already have had the experience when you're going through a recruitment situation, right? I just, I, I've always had a bias that it feels like people are already looking for you already to have done it because it's an easy mm-hmm. win. And yet we know that there's certainly circumstances where that's just not going to happen, right? There's there's so much variety in this in the business world. There's no way that you've hit some of these circumstances. No, that that's right. And and so certainly here, the the candidates that jump to the top of the list, particularly early in a search, are the candidates with a track record of doing just what the client is seeking. Um, but but to your point, oftentimes those folks either don't exist in a high enough supply or those folks are already engaged in an opportunity and want to see that through before they move on to their next challenge. So where we try to dive in a little bit deeper, and again, this is through the lens of chemicals materials, it's it's particularly then, can we get to candidates that have the relevant products, chemistry, market knowledge, or candidates that, to your point, maybe haven't had the full P&L from the top to bottom line. But if our client is seeking more of a commercially oriented executive, then this is somebody with a track record of sales and marketing, commercial excellence, has realigned a product portfolio, has repositioned an existing portfolio. Because oftentimes in these types of roles, if the strategy is sound and the company is just looking to head down a similar track, then we tend to find more of those roles will be internal promotes than they are external because the strategy is more or less fully baked. There might be some incremental tweaks here or there, but you're not looking anything too revolutionary or evolutionary. But in situations where client is either bringing a new product to market or has made a very significant asset acquisition and it positions the business into markets and categories where it may not be as expert, bringing somebody in that brings that relevant product and category experience will will certainly be a standout from, from a resume perspective. Yeah, makes sense. And the speed of innovation is just accelerating. Faster faster than ever. It's the commercialization rates. And, you know, we have this conversation. I have this conversation 
quite regularly with, with chief technology and head of R&D officers. And it's, it's that continued balance between now and next. But the fact is, customer and consumer trends are changing faster than ever. There is certainly far more of a needed emphasis on AI, connected devices, machine learning. There's certainly as much of an emphasis as ever in and around sustainability, circularity, closed loop recycling, however one thinks of it. And so that puts far more of an emphasis on the product development innovation side where we can't just manipulate molecules because it's fascinating chemistry. How does this truly compete and win? And how does this position the company and the product to the addressable market? And that is where, you know, to somebody who maybe hasn't been a chief technology officer before, just as an example, but has a track record of, of doing just this and has proven the ability to build those internal stakeholder relationships, right? Where you can yeah. work with the business units, you work with marketing, you work with engineering. So you're not operating the stage gate process in a vacuum. It truly is tethered to the strategic business growth plan. Hmm, that's interesting. And of course, that then ties very well to why you're still seeing a lot of growth and placement in these innovative growth-oriented roles. Absolutely. And yeah. the the smaller to what I would classify middle market cap companies have a strong interest in the candidates that come from those Fortune 500, what we would call blue chip, best in class companies, not just yeah. because of the technical foundational training that you receive, which of course is is, is quite strong, but it's more of those softer skills, more of those people mm. elements, right? Where if you grow up in a functionally global driven matrix, then you've learned hopefully the art of influencing or stakeholder engagement and recognizing that at various points in the life cycle, you are going to need individuals that don't report to you or aren't a part of your function, but without their support and without their effort, it's going to make your project very difficult to get from start to finish. Do you do a lot of work in finance placement out of curiosity? I have a question that, that ties to that. We, we do. Our, our firm does a fair amount of work in and around uh, CFOs and financial officer practices in, in general. The CFO role in many respects has become that strategic business partner to the CEO, uh, particularly as some companies have, I, I don't want to say done away with the chief operating officer because that's not necessarily true, but I think some of the functional components tied into a COO have found their way in some respects into the chair of the CFO. And, and so with that, the finance officer is more than just balancing the budget, balancing the books, et cetera. It really is now a strategic thought partner to the CEO and certainly to the business. So one of the things, and I know I've, I've seen this at Shaw, I've seen this elsewhere, right? So there's been a trend over the past decade, maybe more, of offshoring, if you will, mm. a lot of the early career finance roles, the things that are viewed as more repeatable, less strategic, right? Lower value. And yet what has historically been 
proving grounds, development space, and opportunity for a young graduate, early career individual to get mm-hmm. some experience, dive in deep, et cetera. And, and I know that at the time, you know, there's certainly, I saw, I've seen this with some of my colleagues, my former colleagues that concern that, well, how do you actually get positioned then for the bigger roles, the bigger finance roles that are more strategic, if you haven't cut your teeth on some of the fundamentals? Are you seeing this? Is this a concern? Has it been alleviated? It, it, it is a concern and it, it has been a concern, particularly as the big companies get bigger and you lose what we would classify or what we would call the, the training wheels, PL, where you can take a high performer, a high potential and drop this person into a 50 hundred million dollar business where in in the broader in the broader enter, enterprise scope it's more or less a rounding error but you're really giving you're really giving this executive an opportunity to show that you can make that transition which is ultimately the most difficult transition an executive makes is going from the individual contributor subject matter expert to now having to lead and ultimately get results through your team and, and so when you have those types of roles where folks can get real world experience, ultimately, they're probably reporting into a business unit president, a senior vice president, whatever the case might be. So there's at least a mentor or a guide that can keep the, the train on the tracks if needed. But it really provides the company an in-house talent breeding ground where you get to see, hey, of the top 50 high potentials we have, maybe we've winnowed that down to five, but these are five that have proven they can run a $100 million business. Now we think they can scale to 500 million, a billion, whatever the case might be. So as those opportunities or as the companies have gotten larger and those types of P&L opportunities are just not as in great supply as they used to be, we are seeing companies that are developing what I would call immersion programs, and, and particularly in the case of, say, chemicals, materials, agribusiness, where you're trying to find executives, you're trying to find talent that might be stronger on the AI, IoT, machine learning side of the house, but maybe didn't grow up in a chemicals plant or didn't have aspirations of being a chemicals executive. And and so the immersion programs is really designed to take somebody with that functional and hard skill set that you need and teach them enough about the business. So as they rotate, they understand the value drivers, they understand the levers, and now they're becoming part of that next generation of talents. Interesting. Do you have a hard and, time? Con- and I know we talked about this before, so yeah. I'm not going. I'm not going to belabor the points. But the world of private equity has become a very strong landing ground for these top flight executives who maybe aren't waiting for the next platform level or C-suite level role to open. They feel and they have the skills and experiences to prove it that they're ready now. And and so if you have an opportunity early in your career to become a CEO of even a hundred million dollar business, and if that becomes a very successful exit, now your career optionality has has evolved almost exponentially 
because you've proven you understand the economics and the cadence of private equity, but really you understand the economics of monetizing assets. Mm. What about duration? I mean, you talk about these young young executives. I'll, if anybody maybe under the age of 40 is young, I'm maybe 50, frankly. <laughs> but but what about duration? How, you know, I think, in fact, I, I talked just this week or got published with Pat Rapella, who is in a you know, similar field as you. And he talked about kind of the perception of job hopping, which maybe is allowed earlier in your career, but is less allowed as you get older. How long do you need to be in a role to prove yourself, especially when you think of, to, to private yeah. equity, let's just say, or any of these roles? No, it's that, that's an excellent question. And there's not, there, there's not a firm, hard and fast number, but I would say from my own experience that you'd like to see an individual in a role for at least three years. So you have enough time to understand what this individual walked into. You know, maybe it was a turnaround, maybe it was continued growth, maybe it was something different, but you have an opportunity to examine what this individual walked into, the changes that he or she brought about, and, and more importantly, why the strategic refresh, why these changes were made, what market data what customer data was used into that decision-making model. And then you have a year, which again, may or may not be enough time to truly judge how successful these initiatives were, but at least you have an opportunity to gauge to a degree how successful it was or wasn't, at least on the onset. Now, if, if this person is going to stay in their current company, and then they move into a different business, a different function, whatever it might be, then you still have a line of sight because although you're not directly running the business, you still get to see your handiwork and you get to see how sustained those results may or may not be. But we, we tend to see that it's that three to maybe four years, particularly in a P&L role where the individual is responsible for you know, the full top and bottom line. Awesome. Kendall or Samir, you guys want to jump in at all? I see Kendall thinking. Give me a few minutes. You know, questions are going to show up when I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let me, I'm going to pivot a little bit while Kendall's thinking. We can always pivot back. <laughs> Board placements. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, again, they say, you know, have your board resume. You know, yeah. what's... What distinguishes a maybe a mm. board placement or a board ready person or role versus an executive ready role? How do you how do you differentiate? Great question. Well, certainly here, if if one is looking to get into that that first board opportunity, being a, a sitting CEO is the the quickest path, the most efficient path to getting there. But, but short of, short of that, it, it's then building the skill sets that are very relevant and important for a board director, which is the, what we call the financial skills, the strategic skills, the relational skills, and then particularly here in, in your current role. And so, for instance, if if somebody's looking for that first board role and it's with an incredibly 
technology, innovation-driven chemicals company. And that really is going to be the, the driver of how this company continues to win and grab market share than if it was somebody who had that relevant skill set in terms of the innovation, the commercialization, and is able to relate their role to what the company who's looking for an outside board director seeks. I think that is a more efficient way to position yourself, short of, of course, being either a current or a retired CEO. Got it. And and then just building upon that, of course, as, as we've talked about a few times here, it's also bringing functional knowledge that either the board doesn't have enough of or it's simply looking to enhance. And so in the case of, say, a chemicals materials company who is really looking to elevate its, its digital or AI or machine learning performance, then that is an organization that might might be looking for somebody with a very specific toolkit or somebody who has successfully, as an executive, been able to take a more traditional product-based business or taking the, the hardware side, if you will, and been able to leverage that or able to implement the software, which ultimately not maybe, maybe, maybe not made a better product, but it was more around the ancillary applications, service, ways in which you can just simply get more sticky with your customer base and then ultimately grab larger share of wallet. Interesting. And it's really not so much to provide content knowledge. It's really to provide that guidance in terms of and and kind of ascertain whether the company's really doing what it needs to be doing. That's right. Yeah. All right, Ken, bring it on. I'm done. I can tell. <laughs> I have a two-parter. They're a little related. And, and my perspective, Ron, is, is I get asked a lot by, I'll say, directors or junior executives who haven't used recruiters in the past. So it's, it's the guys who are breaking into the level where they where a lot of the mm-hmm. searches are, you know, sort of routine searches. I guess that you had said many times you start a search and there's already a short list. And this goes to what kinds of activities this person should be doing and maintaining the network. How often would you say? that the shortlist candidate, somebody who's known to the hiring panel, the executive team, wins the job? Um, so that's question number one. And I'll let you answer that one. I get, and then I have a second question off of that one. So how many or what percentage of the time is, is the candidate identified early? I think that, Kendall, goes back to what, what I mentioned earlier. If, if it's simply a backfill for an executive where the the board feels the strategy is is sound, the the execution is on par to what's expected, then that tends to be either an internal candidate or a candidate that has a similar type of background and career trajectory as yeah. the incumbent. Because you're not necessarily looking for anything that's going to be too transformative or somebody who's going to come in and may not have the requisite skill sets of what the individual retiring or leaving has because the company feels that we're in a pretty good place. Damn. When it gets to a role where it may not necessarily be a full strategic refresh, but it, it's clear that the business is heading in a direction that is either foreign to where they've been or it might be through an acquisition that was recently made then that tends to be more of want a full market scan 
and may, may be prioritizing a certain segments of the value chain, whether it be the, the raw material manufacturers to the processors, formulators, maybe the folks that are one step away from the ultimate end user. And, and that's yeah. where spending time with the board, spending time with the leadership team, we can start to drive in a little bit more, not necessarily where this person sits, but why the board is interested in somebody with that skill set. And, and so where that comes into the networking piece, it gets to the, the more time you spend with, with an executive recruiter, and I'm not saying you've got to spend this time with 20 or 10 or maybe even five, but if there are recruiters that come highly recommended through your individual network that either you've used and they placed you when you were a candidate or you have been able to use as a hiring manager yourself, that gives you a pretty good lens of how this individual assesses and calibrates candidates, how this individual is able to reach into the market. And then in some ways where you can be a bit more provocative and introduce mm-hmm. a candidate or two that maybe doesn't look right down the center of the plates, but this candidate has the skills, the experiences. And I think more importantly, especially in the case of where you're looking for some fresh thinking, this is somebody who's not tethered to the way things have always been done. And this is somebody taking a very analytical and almost surgical view of the business and can quickly distill, these are the two to three levers that I see. Here's how we maximize those levers. I mean, and do you find that candidates are often known to somebody on the hiring team? There's some sort of one degree of separation or zero degrees of separation on on your executive team yeah and gr- great question and and candidly the bigger the world gets the smaller the network is so so yes okay. we, we tend to find in in the larger public companies of course if you're talking about a very high level prominent c-suite position then there is a high probability, whether a board member or a member of the C-suite, or maybe even somebody in your commercial organization who has seen this person as a customer, supplier, whatever it might be, they'll have a line of sight. Yeah, It may not be a deep line of sight, but there's at least enough there to warrant the conversation. In the world of private equity, that is actually far more common, uh, whether it be on the investment side or whether that be on the operating partner side, simply because when candidates get to New York or London, whatever the case might be, they're oftentimes spending some considerable energy meeting with investment banks, meeting with private equity firms, meeting with sponsor-backed vehicles. And so with that, those relationships and those networks carry quite strongly. So my second part to that, you talked about situations where, you know, you, you can't field perfect matches. And so you've got candidates on the roster who are sort of have gaps, right? And this is a common, I think it's a common misconception in the industry is that, oh, I got to have all the experiences that they're looking for. So if not, I can't be in play. When you have candidates with gaps that make it, you've already said, in some cases, it's because it's because the client is willing to take a little bit more of a flyer because of the nature of the role. But in, I'd say across the board, when you have candidates with gaps that make it, what are some differentiating characteristics of what those candidates presented that the other candidates with gaps did not present, would you say? Yeah. No, it's, it, it's a great question. And it really gets to 
the conversations we we have when when folks want to become a first time CEO, right? And and irrespective of the CEO today, at one point he or she was a first time CEO. So whether it was their current company or their company at the time, or they were externally recruited, they were a first time CEO. And and so what we tend to see is it's the candidates that bring what we would call that emotional intelligence. They bring the EQ. They have a strong strategic mindset in in that they're able to quickly get to what those value levers are and and how to maximize them. And, And the advantage there, of course, Kendall, is whether you're the CEO of an enterprise or you're the business unit president of a complex global portfolio, you're making many of the same decisions. You're going through the same criteria. Mm-hmm. You're just doing it in a part of the business versus the entire enterprise. But many of the skills and many of the execution techniques will remain the same. And then I think what, where we like to distill a little bit further is we, we like to see that intellectual curiosity. We like to see that agility, that learning agility, and that adaptability. And so that is where, and Victoria, this kind of gets back to your previous question. We like to see candidates that if they've been with a company for, let's just say 15 years, right? Where they've had three, four, five very significant jobs. Some have been promotions, some may have been lateral, but we want to see that diversity in business cycle experience where maybe you walked into a business that was in full growth mode and EBITDA was just blowing past the budget. And how do the executives stepping in there have an opportunity to continue that going while making sure that the supporting functions were there to keep the business humming along and then maybe getting moved into a turnaround situation. So what you're really showing is I've been able to step away from what I was doing incredibly well and very successfully moved into a different business, different product, different go-to-market channel strategy, however it may be phrased, and over time became equally successful. And, and that is not necessarily past as prologue, but it's showing throughout your career that you've taken risks, that you've taken calculated risks. And, and oftentimes, Kendall, it's that person that was maybe promoted a half step away from being ready for a job, but either had a sponsor, had a mentor, had somebody in the organization that that simply identified this is an individual that is worth the investments and they are going to be a very positive human capital ROI. Okay. So EI, that ability, even if they haven't had full experience to get it up at that strategic level and frame the issues and the levers and that, that you would pull and then your adaptability, agility, and intellectual curiosity, both by their behavior, but by their history as well. And where that will really shine through, and I know, Victoria, you and I and, and Kendall, we've talked about this. You're often able to show with those moves, how do you link talent acquisition and talent development and retaining to value creation. And one of the easiest ways to identify that right is is through followership. So Kendall, you move to a different company 
And when I asked you about your leadership team and you explained to me how many folks came from your prior company or folks that joined you and wanted to be a part of your current leadership team. And that to us is, it's not the only data point, but it is an incredibly strong data point because folks have, especially what we would classify as the A players, right? The best of the best. Mm -hmm. That aggregated group, 2022, prior to 22, and certainly post-22, that aggregated group will have more optionality in front of them than most. And so when that group or when the individuals within that group decide to follow a boss or they decide to follow a team, there's a reason for that. And that's what gets us energized because we want to understand what that is and and in some ways how this person's been able to navigate. And again, the world of chemicals is incredibly complex and incredibly knowledge intensive. But when you find somebody who can distill that and break it down to where the broader organization understands what's expected and why, those are the people that are far more successful than not. Got it. Super insightful. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Well, this has been great. And I want to be mindful of time because I think we've hit the end of our scheduled time. But thanks, Ron, for joining us. This is going to get, it's recorded. It's going to get published on the chemical community. Um, I'll make sure you have a link and others will as well. So people that had signed up but did not join us today still will have access as well. So anyway, thank you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for participating, Kendall and Ron. And we will see you around the bend. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, guys. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.